studying biblical history and literature, was situated on the sixth floor of a new 20-story high arts block. And to get to your department, you either walked up the stairs or it had a wonderful system called the Paternoster. If you want to know why it was called that, ask me afterwards. Which was a kind of chain of two-person cabins progressing in a clockwise... Well, here's a picture you can see. Progressing in a clockwise direction. It's just two people, and they went very slowly. And if you wanted to go up, you went in the left-hand one, and you just walked in or jumped in with confidence. And it went up, and when you came to your floor, you just got out again. And it rotated around in this huge, big circle from the top to the bottom. However, at busy times, we discovered we had a problem on the lower floors. Because if you wanted to go any higher, at busy times, all the cabins were full. So there was a way around this. And the way around it was to get into the more empty ones, which were going down. Get into a down one. Everybody's still following this, yes? You get in the down one, and you go down and down to the basement. There's a big sign saying, this does not tip upside down when you get to the bottom. <laughs> uh, so you went down and down, and then back up again, up to the other side. Every, everyone follow what I'm saying? Contrary to what you might think, the only way up was down. The only way up was down. And on a very much more important subject... Jesus taught that the only way up to get to God is down. And that's our theme for today. Here's how Jesus put it. For all of those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The only way up is down. And this upside-down world of God's kingdom was so contrary to public and religious opinion then and now that Jesus told several of his stories called parables to illustrate this point. The stories with a sting in the tail, T-A-L-E-T-A-I-L, to make the point. And one of them is the next section of Luke's Gospel. We've been making our way through the Bible, through the New Testament account of the life of Jesus. There are four of them in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're making our way slowly through the third one, written by a doctor called Luke. All right? And uh, we're making, slowly making our way through. And today we come to the parable, the little parable. It's only six verses called the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Now, if you've got one of these Bibles, it's page 1052. It's chapter 18. That's the big, bold numbers. And then the little numbers, verse 9. It's just six verses. And I think wherever she is, Elaine's reading. Where is Elaine? There she is. Come on, Elaine. Here's a microphone. Thank you very much. You okay? Okay. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, 
went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So, this is a story about two men. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Now, when Jesus told his story, his hearers, this is way back nearly 2,000 years ago, when they said Pharisee and tax collector, everybody then knew who a Pharisee was and how they fitted in society and who a tax collector was and how they fitted in society. Unfortunately, today, both of these people probably have different reputations for us. We can easily miss the point. So let's just begin by consulting the dictionary. What's a Pharisee? Well, if you look up any dictionary, it gives two definitions. Pharisee, one, a member of an ancient Jewish sect teaching strict observance of Jewish traditions. And the second one is a self-righteous or hypocritical person. It's largely because of the teaching of Jesus that people think Pharisees only in terms of the second definition, a self-righteous or hypocritical person. It's because of these parables and the way that Jesus spoke about them that we've got the second definition. But when Jesus spoke this, go back to his original audience, when he spoke it, only definition one applied. A Pharisee was a member of an ancient Jewish sect teaching strict observance of Jewish traditions. The Pharisees were strict religious people. People looked at them and admired them because they were the the top elite of religious observance. They were people who strove to obey the law that God had given to the people of Israel through Moses all those centuries before. So they had a very high reputation. So what about the other one? What about tax collectors? Well, if you look at the dictionary, the dictionary says a tax collector is a person who collects compulsory financial contributions imposed by a government in order to raise revenue. Well, we all know that. We still have them. Only two things are certain in life, death and taxes. And those who work for the Inland Revenue, I guess, for most of us, they're a necessary evil, Apologies if you're a tax collector today. I once preached on this and there was a tax collector in the congregation. So. But when Jesus told this story, go back to the original context. When Jesus told this story, there were a lot of other definitions of tax collectors. Tax collectors were regarded as collaborators. When Jesus spoke this story, Israel was occupied by the greatest empire on earth, the Roman Empire. And the Romans wanted to collect taxes. So they taxed everybody for everything. And rather than doing it themselves, they employed people, they called them tax farmers actually, to farm out and go and get the income from people, all the local population. So you weren't very popular if you were the guy who had to come around and ask your Israelite neighbors for some income. But even worse than that, all the Romans were interested in is getting the set amount. What the tax collectors did in addition to that was their own business. So what a tax collector would do would keep adding on amounts. You owe the Romans 100 shekels, he'll say it's 150 shekels or whatever the denomination was in those days. So they were regarded as collaborators, as traitors, extortioners, as thieves, and a lot more rude epithets that I'm not going to mention. So these were the two people in the story. Let me put it this way. If this were not a parable but were a pantomime, all right, when Jesus told the story, he'd say, two men went up to the temple to pray, a Pharisee, ah, 
and a tax collector. Boo! <laughs> so when Jesus told this story about going to the temple, the religious place, to pray, everybody knew where they fitted the tax collector and the Pharisee. They knew what the outcome and answer to their prayers would be. The Pharisee, if you want to put it this way, was the highest rung of the ladder to get to God. The tax collector wasn't even on the bottom rung at all. But everyone, not least the two men, is in for a shock as we go through the parable itself and see the outcome. So what I want to try and do is just to trace the trajectory of this narrative of the story. All right? There are three stages in the story. Okay? This is really simple. Okay? These two men... Go to the temple to pray. So, stage one, going up. Two men, said Jesus, went up to the temple to pray. Why did you go up to the temple to pray? Because the temple in Jerusalem was situated on Mount Zion. It was the highest spot in the nation of Israel. It was the highest spot. So whenever you went to pray, you always went up. And in fact, there were also some stairs going up to the temple. So you went up to the temple to pray. Uh, the temple is not there, as you probably know, in modern Israel. There's a picture there of the Temple Mount, which is a Muslim dome of the rock on the Temple Mount. But in the days Jesus spoke, that's a kind of reconstruction of what it might have looked like on the screen there. So notice this is really important. The place of worship then was not in a cave, not in a basement somewhere. It was up. And the physical location reflected, if you like, a metaphorical reality, that God is somehow up above human beings. All over the world, people instinctively, intuitively, are aware that there is such a being as God, above and beyond us, someone different, greater, better, higher than us. And so more often than not, all over the world, people go up to pray. Usually to the highest geographical points in their nation or land. In fact, if you know the Bible well, in the early days of the Bible, way back in the first book called Genesis, people tried to build a tower to get up to God. And there are ancient ruins of similar places. They're called ziggurats, if you're interested. They were common in those days. It's still the case today. I remember many, many years ago, uh, when I was living in Nepal, uh, on a trek going up a hill, probably have called it a mountain, it was so high, and uh, as usual, I was way ahead of all the rest of the group. And we got, I got to the top of this hill. It was deserted and windswept with a few trees, and there was a, a temple right on the top of this place. No one in sight, but there was a temple, a place of worship. So it was that the two men in this story, they went up to the temple to pray. Not just a temple, but the temple. This is a temple built by King Herod to kind of impress the Jews. Uh, the Bible, the record of God's dealings with people describes how he chose a particular race, the people of Israel, and placed them in their own land. And within that land, he selected a particular place where his people could communicate with him, the temple on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. So it's a place where you met with God in order to pray. So the story tells us these two men went up to the temple to pray. Now, in the temple, sacrifices were offered daily by the priests. And in fact, there were two every day. One early in the morning after dawn, one in the sort of late afternoon after three o'clock. And when that happened, they sacrificed a lamb for the sins of the people. 
And then they cast incense onto the hot altar, and the smoke went up. And when people entered the temple precincts, they could see the smoke rising. They could smell the incense, and they knew sacrifice has been offered. Now the gate's open. It's time to come and worship God. It's time to speak to God, to bring our concerns before him, uh, because the door is open. So these two men go up to the temple then to pray. And we discover not only are they very different in who they are, but they're very different in how they pray. So stay with the story if you've got the Bible stood in front of you. Notice the second movement in this parable. Two men went up to pray, stage one going up, stage two looking down. Both of them, if you read carefully, look down as they pray. The Pharisee looks down on everyone else with a sense of self-congratulation. God, he says, I thank you that I'm not like other people. The Pharisee is full of self-confidence as he prays. This is not indicated by the fact that he stood to pray. In those days, people stood to pray. Rather, it's revealed in what he says, for he stood by himself apart from the rest. And he prays not just by himself, but about himself. He says, I'm superior to everyone else. In comparison with everyone else, from that perspective, he's not like other men. His superiority to other people is expressed in what he does and doesn't do, and what he does do. He says, I'm not a robber, I'm not an evildoer, I'm not a tax collector, I'm not an adulterer, I'm not like this tax collector who's probably at a distance on on the edge of the temple courts. Listen to what he says he does do. Uh, the law of Moses, I mentioned, told God's people they were supposed to sacrifice and they were supposed to fast, abstain from food, on one day of the year. It's called Yom Kippur. It's still celebrated by the people of Israel, the Day of Atonement. Once a year, the Pharisees went completely overboard. They fasted twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays. The law of Moses said you should tithe, that means give a tenth of your income, of grain, oil, and wine. The Pharisees said... Not just that, I'm going to tithe on everything I eat. I'll tithe on my carrots, on my peas, on the salt I put on my food, because surely God will be interested in that and pleased with that. So there he is praying about himself and what he does. It's a recitation of all the things he's done, which he believes will bring him favor with God, for surely God marks on a curve and he must be near the top somewhere. He's certainly, he's certainly in the past zone, in fact, top of the class. Certainly higher than other people, particularly these tax collectors. Now, let's just pause for a moment. Few of us, I think, would be bold enough to put ourselves at the top of the moral league. But I'd be surprised if any of us would put ourselves at the bottom. You see, the thing is, there's always someone who's worse than us. The 20th century version of the tax collector. That's why people love the tabloid news when they always put on someone who's terribly bad. You know, who's done something terrible because we look at it and think, well... I'm not as bad as that. There are a lot of people below us, even if there might be one or two really good people, you know, the sort of Mother Teresa person above us, you know, high up there. If we compare ourselves with the rest of the population, yeah, I know I'm not perfect, but I've never done anything really bad, and I give to charity, good causes, I'm a good neighbor, I help others where I can. But the bottom line is this, as long as I can look down on some other people, then I can look up to God with confidence that he will approve of me. That, that's what the Pharisee thought. It's what many people think. I don't know whether that's what you think. Now contrast this with the prayer of the tax collector. 
The Pharisee is full of self-congratulation. The tax collector is full of self-abasement. And he cries out, God be merciful to me, the sinner. We see this in the attitude of the tax collector, which is different from the Pharisee. He stands at a distance, furthest away from the altar, away from the crowds. He will not even raise his eyes to heaven. He doesn't look down on anyone else. He just looks down on the ground. He stands at a distance. He will not even raise his eyes to heaven. He constantly, it says, beats his breast because the heart was believed to be the source of human goodness and usually badness. And he cries out, his prayer is simple and heartfelt. He says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, the original text actually says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. He sees himself not in comparison with anyone else. He's no, under no illusion about himself. And that drives him to God in desperate prayer. While the Pharisee is complacent because he compares himself with other people, the tax collector is desperate for he's not concerned to compare himself with anyone else, but rather he focuses on himself and his own problem. He realizes he stands before God guilty without excuse. He has no mitigating factors to plead. He throws himself on the mercy of God as he expresses his desperate need. God have mercy on me. He realizes he stands guilty before God and his only hope is that God might be merciful. And that is why he's come to the temple. For he knows that sacrifices have been made for his sin. Is it possible that he might be forgiven? He is guilty before God and only God can remove his guilt. So there we have them. Two different people, two different prayers. Now, the important point of the story is this. Which prayer did God hear? Which prayer did God answer? And here's the final sting in the tail, the final movement of the parable. The reversal of all that Jesus, the hearers of Jesus, we might think. Going up, looking down, and finally upside down. Here's the sting in the tail. I tell you, this man, says Jesus, that is the tax collector, Rather than the Pharisee went home justified before God. And now here's the punchline. Here's what we began with. For everyone, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus uses very strong terms here. He says, I tell you, it's the words of a judge in court. Expressed by the word justified. Justified is a word from the law courts. Jesus gives God's verdict on these two men. The tax collector, says Jesus, is declared innocent. The verb is passive. That means something is done for us by other people. And it's in the perfect tense, if you excuse a bit of grammar, expressing it's an act that that has been completed once for all. He's acquitted, not guilty. As the tax collector finally goes down and leaves the temple, his status before God has been changed. He is now in a right standing before God, for his sin has been forgiven, his guilt has been removed, he humbled himself before God, and God has therefore exalted him. For now he's in a right relationship with God. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. The only way up is down. Now the Pharisee, in contrast, leaves the temple as he entered it. Just the same relationship to God, still convinced of his own righteousness, still comparing himself favorably with others. He's still estranged from God. No sin was acknowledged, and his guilt remains. Those who exalt themselves are humbled. What was his sin? His sin was the sin of pride and his own goodness before God. If you look back at the text, how it begins, we're told why this parable was told. 
to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Now, the word righteousness, just stay with me a bit, complicated language, but the word righteousness and justified are from the same root word. We either rely, you see, coming to God, we either rely on our own goodness, our self-justification, or abandon any such attempts and throw ourselves on the mercy of God, seeking his justification. And the challenge of the story, almost finished, the challenge of the story is obvious. Am I like the Pharisee or am I like the tax collector? As you come to God this morning, are you aware that you have no merits to plead before God? Or do you say, well, actually, that's not true. I'm actually quite a good person. How do we pray when we approach God? You can either leave this, you can leave this place justified. Maybe you're the opposite. Maybe you say, if only you knew the things I've done and that I'm guilty of, you would not believe it. And God will surely not forgive what I did. There may be something that immediately springs to your mind. You think, that is the thing that God is surely never going to forgive me for. Still estranged from God. I want to simply offer you a message of great hope. Simply this. Whatever you've done, whoever you are, there is a way you can be put right with God and forgiven. What do you need to do, you say? Simply this. You need to pray, God have mercy on me, a sinner. The word merciful there is, is an unusual word. I'm sorry I keep talking about the words in the original, but it really is important to understand it. If you were here in this series, you remember that there were ten lepers who cried out to Jesus, have mercy on me. It's not the same word here. That's a general word for mercy. The word here is a very unusual word. It means to conciliate someone, to appease someone that you've offended. Unlike the Pharisee, the tax collector knows that his problem is not that he's better or worse than other people, but that he's offended God by the way he has lived and what he has done. So only God can forgive him and show him mercy. Interestingly, this word is only found in a few of the places. The verb is only found in one of the places in the New Testament, in the New Testament book of Hebrews, where it says, Jesus made atonement for the sins of the people. He paid the debt, turned aside God's wrath. The noun from the same root is found in the little letter in the New Testament written to Christians in Rome. And finish with this one. Uh, and the writer says, This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son, and here's the word again, as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. The way that God could forgive us and turn aside his wrath. This is a wonderful message. It's the basis of why we're here. Hope City is a church, not of hopefully of self-righteous people who are here because we merit in some way. You saw those meetings about if you want to talk about being involved in this church. I don't think they'll ask you how good you are. Tell us all the good things you've done. And if you're high enough up, we might let you in the door of Hope City. Listen, we're all on the same level ground. That's why we meet every week at five o'clock and we break bread and, and we drink wine. Come along this evening because we need to keep coming back and reminding ourselves we're always in danger of slipping into thinking we are better than other people because of what we have done. Reading an article this week by a pastor of a church who said, I am a recovering Pharisee. <laughs> and we need to be careful that we don't slip back into that way of thinking. Now in our story in Luke's Gospel, here's, here's the final wonderful thing. Those who exalt themselves will be humble. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. 
as we trace this story through, we're up to chapter 18 now, as we come to the end of Luke's gospel, we'll discover that Jesus puts this into practice himself. Jesus humbles himself. Another letter in the New Testament says he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross, to pay the price for our forgiveness. Then it says, God therefore has exalted him. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. Given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow. And God declared that by raising him from the dead. And this is the message of hope. It's why we're called Hope City. It's a great name, isn't it? Because it offers hope to you, whoever you are, whatever you've done. Through Jesus, we can experience God's mercy, know God's forgiveness, be put right with God. But always remember, always remember, the only way up is down. Let's just pause for a moment. Think about that, then David will take over and we'll answer some questions. Or David will, anyway. <laughs> Let's just pray for a moment. Gracious God, thank you that there is a way of forgiveness, of mercy, of a new relationship with you through what your son Jesus did when he died on the cross, when you raised him from the dead. Thank you that many of us can look back on that day or occasion when we first realized that and came to the foot of the cross and found mercy and forgiveness. But every day we need to know that that it's not by merit, but by grace, your grace alone. So we thank you for that. I pray that each one of us here may go from this place down to the stairs from Hope City, justified in a right relationship with you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.